Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Take a moment and think about the last GIF you used. Whether it's on social media or in messaging, picture it in your mind. For me, it was a GIF of Prince, as you might be expecting. And the reason why, to be fair, was because I was responding to somebody about politics in Minnesota, and that's where he was from. But think a little bit bigger about the last few GIFs you used and what you were trying to express when you did that. If you search for words like yes or no using the GIF databases that are out there, these are apps like Giphy or Tenor, what you'll get back on those search results are usually a pretty diverse set of images, cartoons or animals, or at least different kinds of people coming back on those searches. But now, what if you go and you search for stronger emotions, things like the word happy or sad? I bet you'll notice that you start to see more black faces. Now keep searching for even more evocative reactions or emotions like shade or sassy. I bet you'll find you almost exclusively get back images of black women. Like right now, I'm going to search for the word confused and I get back uh, an image of Chris Rock. And if I search for angry, I get Rihanna. And she doesn't seem like an angry person to me. But if I search for something a little more neutral, a little more relaxed, like thank you, that phrase, I get Lady Gaga. And you'll get different results when you do this kind of search because these patterns and results change all the time. But notice the overall trend. When it comes to expressing our more complicated, stronger reactions online, we often end up seeing and using images of black people. And our use of GIFs isn't just limited to searching in these database apps. Think about the most popular viral GIFs that are used online, whether by people or by brands. So many of them feature an image of a black person who's having a very strong emotional reaction to something. And oftentimes that reaction is exaggerated just by nature of the fact that it's been taken out of context and clipped into a GIF. And don't get me wrong, I love GIFs. I love using them. I think they're an amazing tool and a great way to express our emotions in a digital world that oftentimes lacks nuance and feeling. But as we know by now, a lot of times the real world's racism and its race dynamics often get replicated when we go online. So this time around on Function, we are tackling the concept of digital blackface. I think of digital blackface most broadly as a form of racial slippage or a racial masquerade, you could call it, um, enabled by digital technology, digital platforms. That's Lauren Michelle Jackson. She's a professor and author of the upcoming book, White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. Now, you know, with a title like that, this book is going to be hot. Looking forward to talking to her, especially because of this article she wrote a few years ago for Teen Vogue. It went super viral and it was explaining that basic concept of digital blackface. That could mean 4chan who are orchestrating, you know, kind of widespread, you know, attacks on online black communities, you know, creating fake profiles and, you know, these very kind of organized means of, quote unquote, you know, infiltrating discourse online and really trying to disturb abilities for communities of color to organize. But it can also be something as simple as just trying to borrow uh, the coolness or the kind of cultural cachet of something that is actually not really fluent to someone's body and someone's culture outside of the internet. We talked about what blackface on the internet means in 2019 and how it's related to race and appropriation more broadly. 
So it's really interesting because there's a spectrum of both, you know, an orchestrated campaign to try and simulate or attempt to emulate being black and having a nefarious intent is very, very different than somebody who might not know they're being thoughtless and there's still a harm there, but there's a very different sort of purpose to what they're doing. So it seems like there's a pretty broad spectrum of the ways this plays out. Absolutely. And the term actually originally came from Joshua Lumpkin Green, who wrote a master's thesis in 2006 called Digital Blackface, the Repackaging of the Black Masculine Image. And he, in his thesis, was looking at Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Hmm. And so in his definition of the term or his formulation of the term, he was really thinking about the way in which uh, video games sort of allow this sort of seamless connection between, you know, the character on the screen and the controller and the body of the person playing the game and the way in which you can essentially play act, you know, as a black person and kind of live out the fantasy of what you would do in this racialized body. And it was Kate Brown, who is an art historian in 2012, that actually applied that term to gift behavior on, you know, Tumblr, which was sort of the platform du jour when she was doing a lot of her research. And so, you know, what I'm doing with the term is to try to connect all those disparate pieces, but then also think about a much wider culture and basically what Tumblr has become, you know, now in the year 2019, where we do have what the platform itself calls trolls, but, you know, are kind of much more than trolls. They're, you know, they're racists and Nazis who are doing mm-hmm. really, really nefarious stuff online. Our first episode in season one, we talked about the game Fortnite, which obviously, you know, is a successor to the GTAs of the world. So, you know, a little newer take on um, that sense of you can play these other characters. But one of the things you can do in the game is you can uh, use an emote, a dance. And, you know, we talked to Two Millie about seeing the Millie Rock be in the game, but not credited, not paid. It's not an official Millie Rock if it ain't come from me. So how could you put that into a game and a brand without contacting the creator? How many people playing the game can do the Millie Rock the way that you Millie can, right? So there's this little <laughs> bit of like, this is letting me play act as someone else. Is that is that a facet of that same sort of desire, that same behavior? Absolutely. I would, you know, I would definitely put that um, in the, you know, same kind of category of a cultural, um, if not racialized, masquerade. You know, the very definition of, you know, a reaction image or reaction gif, um, you're borrowing something, you know, from the image or the image is doing something for you, um, is delegating something um, that you are, you know, on one hand, unable to do because you're a person and, you know, there is an online space unless we were going to, I don't know, like record ourselves and have a kind of endless library of our own selves, you know, reacting Mm -hmm. to various news. But no, that's impractical. So, of course, you delegate that work to, you know, an image and oftentimes a kind of exaggerated image of what you're feeling at that particular moment. Um, And so there is that there's always that sort of desire or that sort of reaching or, you know, the image doing for you something that you actually cannot do for yourself at the time. Is there an aspect of how especially black artists, because so many of the gifts are of you know, celebrities, right? They're, they're actors or they're reality TV stars or they're singers or whoever they are. Is there an aspect of this that is about an artist sort of being tasked with representing a feeling, emotion, a thought, an idea that, that sort of feels analogous to you know, their art being taken or their creativity being exploited? 
I do think we're in an interesting point now where you could see how certain television shows like Insecure or, you know, reality stars on, say, Drag Race or something like that are cognizant of the, I guess, currency of gift culture online. And so I think that, you know, creates a situation where you have art and popular culture that is making itself sort of preemptively gifable. Um, I think you could have even this season of Big Little Lies to that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so on one hand, I think in the pop culture sphere, you know, it's kind of expected that, you know, you're going to take a snapshot and give something and circulate it widely on the web. And I think that's something that a lot of creators want. But I also think there are, you know, moments from maybe an earlier version of the Internet, you know, late 2000s, kind of early 2010s version of the Internet, where it was everyday you know, everyday people, everyday black people, you know, going viral for whatever reason mm-hmm. and their image being circulated so widely and not really getting any benefit from that. Right. Not, they become memefied, you know, but it's not an exactly. exchange. And they don't have a show that they get to promote. They don't have, you know, a publicity person they can run back and look at, say, look at the numbers, look at all these people engaging. This is their life, essentially. This is their image. You know, in an earlier episode, we talked to uh, T. Kyle McMahon, who now works on Watch What Happens Live. And as really starting out in fandom on Tumblr, he had created a lot of the first uh, Ninny Leaks gifts that were like, they're still, I think, staples when you see people react to stuff online. And he's a gay white man, which I think is always part of the conversation about how culture shifts, especially from black women to, you know, non-black cultures. And, and it was really interesting because what he expressed was really fandom. He was like, I thought the show was great. I thought she was great. I wanted this to get out there in the world. And, you know, what he heard back from the people running the show was, oh, this helped grow our audience because people are like, oh, I know, you know, I know her. I know that person from what I see in social media. What do you think about that aspect of there being an element of fandom or this is somebody's, they feel their method of expressing support when they're sharing these things? It feels very, like, early or mid, you know, Tumblr to me. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, this was a while ago, too. Because that, that was the love language of Tumblr. Like, you mm-hmm. go on Tumblr to see, you know, all the gifts of Harry Potter, all the gifts of Dr. Sherlock Who. Holmes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? There's, yeah. The, you know, the five shows that people on Tumblr uh, care about. And, right. you know, you would go there to see all of those, and then you would repeat them and recycle them. And then I think it is very different when you get to a place like Twitter where the gifts are so decontextualized or rather Mm -hmm. the context is replaced by whatever the user wants it to be when they employ that gift. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, like to this day, there's probably many, many people who would recognize NeNe Leakes but have no clue who she is, have no clue what Real Housewives of Atlanta is. You know, they just know the face of that, you know, sassy black woman who is, mm-hmm. you know, snapping her fan or wagging her finger. I'll actually use a specific example using actually Nini Leaks. So there's this one episode where <laughs> Nini goes to like downtown Atlanta to visit another cast member um, who's been like staying at a hotel or something like that. And, you know, she's in an area that, you know, she describes as the quote unquote ghetto. The way she says it is, like, super funny, and it's very campy and exaggerated because, you know, she's not in the hood. She's in, like, downtown Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. And so that video, you know, turned into 
a sort of like catchphrase, like woo child, ghetto, right? Yeah. And it became, you know, shortened and abbreviated. And you have all these white people now who are typing out, ooh, the ghetto, since, you know, they don't know the rhythms and the patterns of the language. So they're, they're like, what, you're like, why are we talking about Chile? Oh. You know, what does Chile have to do with it, right? Wow. So, Mucha, I mean, Chile. <laughs> <laughs> the problem of, you know, lack of context and what can happen to, you know, a kind of beloved black staple, whether it's mm-hmm. coming out of, you know, Nene Leakes's mouth or coming out of, you know, my Nana's mouth or just somebody saying it. And now it becomes and now it has turned around back on itself. So now you will hear like black millennials saying, woo, Chile. One of the biggest breakers of context is brands, right? Companies. And everybody's trying to be the coolest brand on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, whatever. Uh, A lot of brands are trying to be like the most woke brand. And a ton of them have used gifts as part of how they're communicating out in the world, right? So you got the, you know, whatever, your Wendy's mixtape and you got your or Hamburger Helper mixtape, I guess. I'm sorry, I'm getting my cool internet brands mixed up as to who has hashtags and who has mixtapes and who has whatever. <laughs> but but to that point, you have this sense of there are companies out there that are, well, very often they're, they've got somebody who's relatively junior in the organization managing social media. Very, very often that person is not black and very often what they're sharing is uh, a gif of a black person responding, reacting emoting about, you know, something that the brand is saying. And then interestingly, those are never compensated spokespeople, right? That's not somebody who's getting paid to represent that brand. How much do you think companies have a culpability in this and in, in, in sort of normalizing that kind of use? Absolutely. You will see, you know, brands trying to get on the, you know, train of digital culture. I think something that is somewhat funny is that I think we now take for granted that brands are going to be extremely late to the party. (laughs) Like, um, you know, I think about, you know, the makeup companies now that are and beauty brands that are trying to capitalize on, you know, hot girl summer, um, (laughs) without giving Megan her coins. And, you know, (laughs) I, I mean, that really is what my book white Negroes talks about, you know, thinking about how, much we take for granted that brands and celebrities are just going to keep scraping and scraping from the cool black kids, essentially. So, you know, we've talked about sort of a couple different ways this plays out. So one is companies are amplifying this stuff. The second part is the technology is giving people almost the default of the, here, here's how you should express yourself. If you mm. just give us a word, we'll give this back to you. Is there a way for an individual to be responsible given that context. I'm out there on social media and I'm not black. I respect black culture. I want to be thoughtful. And is there a way for me to reflect and if I want to be intentional to make sure I'm communicating in a way that's respectful? Or is it just like stay out of this lane? It's not stay out of this lane, that's for sure. I get this question or like some version of this question a lot. So when I wrote um, the article on Teen Vogue about digital blackface, 
you know, outside of, you know, the people who I am like super grateful for engaging with it in, you know, a curious and thoughtful way, everyone else sort of fell into these two camps, which is on one hand, the sort of like conservative, like trollness that it was reposted on who are like, this is ridiculous, like pulling the race car, like everything's racist, like blah, 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 which was expected. And, you know, almost didn't bother me as much as the quintessential white liberal response, which was, um, I'm never using gifts of black people ever again. And everybody look around, you're you're being very racist right now. And basically saying all these things that I, I never said, I never wrote. And that almost bothered me more because it was like, one, you're, you didn't read it. Two, you actually don't care about improving, you know, the ethics of your behavior. Because if you did, you would do the harder job, which was to be constantly vigilant about how you use an online space versus taking the easy route, which is to just say, to throw your hands up and be like, okay, I'm not going to engage. I'm never going to use a black person in my gift. So then I'm, you know, I'm in the clear and then I'm good. Mm -hmm. No, like we're all, we're all sort of like implicated into the racial assumptions that we make. And there is no opting out or really easy way around it. I guess, you know, we just all have to sort of be uncomfortable and triple guessing um, the things that we do and the behavior we do online um, and the things that we share and the things that we circulate. Lauren, thank you so much. This has been an extraordinary conversation, deeply insightful. Thank you. Okay, so I'm hardly an artist, but I'm going to brag a little bit here because I am the first person to have a GIF exhibited in an art museum. I'll take you back to 2006. The internet was young back then, and the World Cup was taking place that year. And there were all kinds of memes being shared about soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. And I thought they were pretty interesting. So I wrapped up a bunch of what people had been sharing into this one kind of elaborate GIF. And it took me hours of work, but I put it all together. And obviously some people thought it was funny or interesting. And it ended up catching the eye of some people in the art world. Next thing I knew, it was exhibited at the new museum here in New York City and later ended up being added to their collection. The thing is, making that gift back then, it took me hours of work. I did a lot of this manually. But these days, it's a lot easier. If we want to use a GIF and a message, we just go to one of these little databases like Giphy or Tenor. There's a lot of different apps out there. Or it could be even simpler. Your phone probably has a button right next to the keyboard that'll let you drop a GIF into whatever app you're using right now. So after the break, we're going to talk about that evolution and especially about the role that tech companies now play in perpetuating digital blackface by speaking with Kenyatta Cheese, the co-creator of Know Your Meme. Welcome back to Function. Last season, we spoke to Kenyatta Cheese, the co-founder of Know Your Meme, for an episode that was sort of an oral history of GIFs. First time seeing a GIF. My gosh, it was probably... An under-construction looping GIF on a GeoCities or an AngelFire page. Mm -hmm. The first time where I saw it and understood that there was a cultural relevance to it was probably Dancing Baby. I invited Kenyatta back onto Function to take this deeper dive into race, appropriation, and GIF culture because it was something that was top of mind for him when he founded Know Your Meme. 
there's a time where a bunch of us were sort of sitting around and uh, we're watching sort of culture uh, sort of flow back and forth on the internet. And in particular, you would see things, new sort of jokes, right? New sort of uh, virals, new sort of uh, pieces of content sort of uh, pop up in places that felt non-traditional, right? There were internet forums, right? There were, um, hell, there were news groups. And that was kind of awesome, right? Because all of a sudden we felt like this was the true culture of the internet, right? It was, it was emerging out of us all coming together and using it. And then there was another piece of it that kind of wasn't awesome, which was all of a sudden we were seeing advertisers come in and, and sort of appropriate uh, these internet memes and turn them into their own sort of for-profit ads and stuff. Yeah, you know, I thought, oh, this isn't right. No, somebody has to set this straight. And then realize, oh, if I recognize it, I have to do it. And so uh, we started building Know Your Meme, which was both a uh, internet meme database. Every single time somebody sends you the same cat picture over and over again, and you're like, why are people sending me this? Like, if you go and you, you hit search, you know, you're gonna get that explanation on Know Your Meme. And what's great about it is that it's a it's a resource where it's people telling their own histories, right? We sort of sparked it, and there's a you know team of folks who sort of you know admin everything from the middle, but it's still people coming and 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 realizing that nobody's telling the story that's significant to them. So you know we're going to get deep into it, but I want to start for folks who might not know, how does something become a GIF in the first place? Like when I go into my Twitter app or or whatever, I can search for, you know, somebody laughing and I get this picture back. Like, how did that get there? We've talked before about how GIFs have had this recurrence, right, on, on the internet. This old file format, which all of a sudden becomes useful again because it's so open, because you don't need proprietary software. You can just sort of hit play and you have this little animated loop, right? And we and all it'll kind of work anywhere. And it works anywhere, right. And so what ends up happening over time is this loop becomes very useful to communities, Folks who are just trying to share small moments of culture and where you don't have to hit a play button. There's just that, you know, the thing you might might absolutely love is that one, that one facial expression that some character makes in a show or something. You can take that video clip, import it into something like Photoshop, and uh, turn it into an animation and then output it into a format that actually works for the web, right? And so early on, um, there were a lot of GIFs that were made uh, purposefully as design pieces. Mm -hmm. Uh, but over time, we start to see this use of gifts as culture, right? Mm -hmm. This is the use of, I'm going to take this one moment and, you know, no, I know that this one reaction face that someone's making is actually more expressive and more, more indicative of, of what I think and what I feel um, than anything I can express myself in, in 140 characters or, or 1,000 characters, right? And so we start making gifts. And in particular, we start making them of TV shows and movies, which uh, kind of makes sense because those are like cultural touch points, right? Right. We talk to each other by saying quotes from movies, right? Or referencing funny right. jokes that we've seen on TV. So might as well share that moment visually, right. especially on, in a visual medium. So as that happens over time, uh, at first you have uh, people kind of making gifts because they're, they're fans of that work. Or they happen, to be in, uh, they happen to be in a community where they know that they can drop this gif in and and people are going to react to people are going to get it. People are going to get that joke. Right. But over time, what happens is uh, as gifts become a, um, a way for people to communicate online and the way that the culture sort of happens online, uh, then suddenly you see the, the, the IP holders, the creators themselves getting involved. Right. And they start making gifts themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's what I did. It becomes official. Yeah. It's yeah, the official gift. Right. Right. And I think of, uh, you know, the other day I, I looked at like I searched the word happy on the, the, the GIF feature in, in one of my apps. And it, it pulled up Alfonso Ribeiro doing the, the Carlton dance on Fresh Prince, right? 
which is, you know, obviously like culturally incredibly widely known, but decontextualized is, whew, that's, you know, (laughs) there's something there, right? There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of buffoonery going on, right? In a way that, you know, like that's not Alfonso Ribeiro, but that is about like, what does this person represent? And and one of the things you realize as we started talking about this idea, just, you know, getting ready to have this conversation was how many words, if I search happy, I search sad, I search surprised, I get back an awful lot of black people who are in character maybe, or on a TV show maybe, or in extremism, in some dramatic moment in their life maybe, and are the the faces of that emotion. So there's a lot to unpack there, but how did that happen? Where are those faces coming from? On one end of the spectrum, you have people who are fans, mm-hmm. right? People who absolutely love that moment. They, you know, mm-hmm. this is, they're sharing it because- They've of, seen every episode. That's it, right, yeah. Got, yeah. yeah. And, and that's why they're making it. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe somebody takes that gif and says, oh, actually this, this expresses happy. And I can see that posted to this forum that everybody reacted in a way that, you know, they all agreed that this was happy. So, right. so it started from sincerity. It complete sincerity. Right. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who's using it is also going to use it for reasons originally intended. I mean, or, or in a sincere manner. And, you know, that's kind of the, in many ways, the, the, uh, the cultural use of gifts and, and, and memes, in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to take a piece of media, you're going to take it and recontextualize it and use it for whatever it means in this moment that I have right now. The interesting thing that happens is um, as gifts become more important and you have, uh, say, um, uh, a platform like a Giphy or a Tenor or platforms that have indexed tons and tons of gifts, suddenly um, a fluid meaning, you know, all of a sudden that meaning becomes a little fixed, right? Mm-hmm. Because somebody has to make a choice, right? So, right, because it doesn't have a context anymore. So you got to just pick what you think it means. Exactly. And so you're you're maybe starting to if you're uh, if you're trying to make a GIF database, you're starting to add some metadata. Right. So and a little context here. So Giphy, Tenor, there's a couple of these companies that are these GIF databases. They've got maybe thousands, millions. How many? Oh, uh, just just millions upon millions. And how do they make money giving gifts to people? Is that a business? <laughs> I'm a CEO of a tech company. I'm a little befuddled. Yeah. From, from uh, So some of them are ad-based. Uh, uh, some of them are, you know, once you become sort of the, re- the repository for gifts, then all of a sudden uh, maybe uh, someone comes to you wanting to make a deal. Uh, okay. So I'm going to search for happy and it's going to be like, drink a Coke. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. All right. So, all right. right. So it's ads. It's the same yeah. answer as everybody yeah. else. Okay. Yeah. So, so you got, so you got it. You got a database, of all these gifts and they're right. coming up and correct me if I'm wrong, but these are tech companies and their staff probably looks like a lot of tech companies, which is to say perhaps not proportional representation on a racial basis. And even if it does, yeah. uh, how many people are, are actually are aware of what it means to assign um, happy dance to this one gift from the Fresh Prince and what kind of effect that could have, say, uh, beyond the original context, mm-hmm. um, beyond the context of, of a fan community, beyond the context of a particular set of users that you think have good intentions. Yeah. Or even globally, right? Like there's all this, there's different cultural meaning. Especially globally, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden you're wondering, oh, you realize that they're in a position to export meaning mm-hmm. and export the representation of an entire people because of the keywords that they're adding to to these gifts. It's stunning that almost every one of the suggested terms in my Twitter app, in my WhatsApp, 
the first result and most of the results will be black people and many times decontextualized in a way that makes it a more extreme, exaggerated kind of view. Did somebody make that choice at these companies? Yeah, but uh, the question is what, how aware are people of that choice, right? Uh, how, how many contexts are they paying attention to at one time, right? Mm. And, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Uh, you, may, you may think you have everything covered. You may think you, you've thought about what this means to a particular set of users. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more uh, semi-wokeness among <laughs> right. among uh, among tech folks nowadays, and so maybe, maybe they're, they're just worried about, about like we don't want to have like a violent image on there. Like they're they're yeah. focused on a different kind of harm. Right, right. And so uh, maybe this is something that they're not as aware of, and um, maybe there isn't a way. That maybe it's not easy for people who might be sensitive to this to to raise this uh, within an environment like that, especially in a giant production environment where you're trying to like just you're just trying to batch a bunch of gifts all the time, right? So, what is their responsibility? Like, what should these companies be doing? Should they have a, a cultural editor reviewing the top gifts? Um, I, th- I think that might be an interesting way, an interesting approach. I think it's hard, right? Because no matter what, the, you know, gifts and memes are, are things where the, 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 the meaning of the gift changes depending on its use. And that use is always local, right? Um, the effect of that media, though... Because you can, we can get uh, we can get a bunch of bits from here to you know halfway around the world in in, in a millisecond. Mm-hmm. Does go beyond whatever we think our local uh, use is, and so whether it's uh, me as an end user or a platform, it becomes a tough thing to figure out. And so, mm-hmm. one of the things that is kind of interesting, I think, as you mentioned, Anil, is is what happens if you start to think about how you educate people. Well, so say you say me as an end user, I'm like, well, how do I teach a billion people on social media? This is the way to thoughtfully use a GIF without it being blackface. Right. Maybe it's about how you curate those GIFs. Maybe it's about um, taking a look at uh, um, how that user experience is. If you're getting a bunch of GIFs and it all happens to be extreme emotions and it all happens to be people of color, then maybe you need to maybe you need to take a look at changing that up and evolving and tweaking your you know your your metadata a little more. Is there a responsibility for me as a GIF user, as a person who expresses himself through GIFs? Uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because I tried for a while. I was like, I'm going to only use South Asian people. Yeah. Right? And I had like four Mindy GIFs in a row. <laughs> and then I was like, that's about, right and I was like, I, I, I feel conflicted about using an Aziz GIF right now. Right. And that's about it. Like nobody else is in here. Right. You know, and I looked, you know, <laughs> you, know I mean? like, you, you can scroll a long time and not see any Indian people in your app. Right. And at companies that I'm sure have some Indian engineers at them. So, so I'm curious about... Like, what do I do? Like, how do I learn to to be thoughtful about what I'm putting out there? Like, I don't want to hurt somebody when I'm just, like, trying to have a good time with some silly thread online. Yeah. For me, uh, I only use GIFs that are made by the man. Hmm. Authorized um, GIFs only. A lot of people use reaction GIFs from uh, black folks uh, who happen to have, you know, they'll be on the local news. And it's like, that's not somebody who, that person has no control over their own representation. Right. So why should I use this? Yeah. Right. Whereas there are a lot of folks who they're consenting to the, to the use of that GIF, um, or I'm sorry, the use of their image. They're hopefully making some bank off of it. Yeah. So, or even putting themselves out there, maybe. And they're putting themselves out there on purpose. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's okay. Um, so and consent. Then, oh. Yeah. I've been doing this. I didn't even think of it that way. You are totally right. Right. So how do you actually think about consent? 
mm-hmm. right, in terms of use of gifts, um, especially as you cross cultures. I remember um, online videos uh, becoming a thing, and all of a sudden there's enough bandwidth where we're starting to see clips of things go pass around, especially early memes, which were oftentimes of black folks, you know, people taking recordings off of the news. Uh, fast forward a couple of years later, and uh, I'm in rural China. And I remember having a conversation with folks who asked me, because I'm, I'm half African-American and half Chinese, and they asked me, oh, you're, you're half African-American. And I said, oh, you don't look like Af- African-Americans. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm mixing. And they said, oh, but you also, um, you don't make the faces like they do. Wow. And I was like, what? So the viral videos of essentially black people in peril in the news are their conceptualization of this is what black people are. Um, and and become their first, you know, it's like their first contact of like, you know, of 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 who we who we're supposed to be. Now we talk about gifts, and gifts are are even have even greater portability, and uh, um, and work on more devices and on lower speed connections and everything. And not only that, we're we're organizing the mass export, and they're even shorter, so even more decontextualized. Right, and it, shorter, and it's looping again and again and again. I'm curious about, you know, how do we carry it forward so it doesn't feel like appropriation? It doesn't feel, you know, exploitative. It does feel consensual. Can you imagine some mechanism by which there is, you know, consent and context built into the tools, built into the technology? Oh, completely, right? We've, we've, we've made small attempts at it in the past, right? Everything from uh, Creative Commons to, um, uh, to different schemas for, for verifying identity, the reason why we built Know Your Meme was because we were seeing culture sort of emerge out of these these non-traditional spaces and then be appropriated by those who sought to turn it into profit. And that didn't seem right. And so we decided, oh, you know what? If we actually become the, the place of record for this stuff where we just say, hey, here's where this comes from, then maybe that starts to give people the context that they didn't have before. There's no reason why... Uh, a Giphy, a Tenor, or anybody else couldn't start adding, uh, adding a lot more about the about the history and the context and the you know what are what are the receipts? What's the lineage of this GIF? This whole season on function, we've been wrestling with the question of trust on the internet, and especially the broader question of whether we can trust the role technology plays in our lives. And if we're thinking about such a lofty topic, it can seem a little odd to look at something as casual and fun as GIFs. Honestly, most of us are just using them to send a funny picture to our friend and when we're communicating with people online. But the way technology works these days is by pulling those images out of the real world and taking them out of their context, whether it is a celebrity who's out there putting their face into the public or sometimes even just a regular person living their lives. A lot of times removing that context and reusing that image in the digital world starts to replicate a lot of the patterns of exploitation that we've seen in the non-digital world. What I'm saying is sometimes that machine is making us do something that replicates the systemic racism of the world around us. I don't think anybody intends that. But maybe by talking about it, what we can do is encourage each other to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more mindful about which images we use whose images we use, and the way we use them. And if we do that, we can keep the machines and the software and the technology from undermining other people's ability to trust and our good intent when we send them a message. 
That's it for this episode of Function. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our glitch producer is Keisha T.K. Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. And our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to the whole engineering team at Vox and a huge thanks to our team at Glitch. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash, but you should also follow the show at Podcast Function, all one word. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to us right now. And also check out glitch.com slash function. We've got transcripts for every episode up there, apps, all kinds of stuff to check out about the show. We'll be back next week and we hope you'll join us then. <laughs>